started, so that way we have a copy of this. Um, uh, again, I, I'm Reese Geralt with World Resource Institute, and I'm very happy to host this um, press call on <clears throat> how we can shape a uh, stimulus package um, tied to infrastructure um, here in the United States. Um, we have a great lineup of speakers um, from a diversity of backgrounds and perspectives uh, on this topic. Um, so uh, first will be Joe Aldi, a public policy professor at the Harvard Kennedy School. He also was the special assistant to President Obama for energy and the environment at the height of the Great Recession, so the, the last 2008-2009 um, timing. So he'll have some great insights on um, on lessons learned um, from implementing the American Recovery Investment Act, and I'm sure lots of other great um, insights mm -hmm. on clean energy. Um, and then uh, our next speaker is Sue Tierney, Senior Advisor for the Analysis Group, um, and also the former Assistant Secretary for Policy at the US Department of Energy, um, who will talk about a number of things, including um, how we can modernize America's electric grid. Um, and then we have Kathy Zoy, who is the CEO for EVGO and the former Assistant Secretary for Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy, um, also at the US Department of Energy. Um, and she'll, she'll talk a lot about um, electric vehicles and charging stations, as well as building efficiency. And then last but not least is um, Debra's um, Dan Lashoff, uh, Director of Debra United States, um, who will talk about um, issues like public transit, electrifying buses, forest restoration, a lot of different opportunities for um, for investment opportunities um, to, to move forward. So uh, we're going to have these um, um, interventions from each of them, about three minutes each. We'll try to keep those pretty pithy, so we leave um, plenty of time for, for a back and forth in the Q&A. Uh, and then we'll go from there. Um, and yeah, I'd say I, I, I will apologize in advance for the, the platform. Normally, we'd have an operator assistant platform. It'll be a little um, less smooth, I, I suspect, today. Um, but please bear with us so when we get to the q a it'd be great for you to to chime in with your name and, and um, outlet and then we can can get into the q a um, but with that i'll hand the floor over to um, joe aldi thank you great thanks reese and thanks to everybody for joining us uh this morning uh the 2009 recovery act included more than 90 billion dollars in spending on clean energy it was the single largest energy bill in u.s history uh, the act promoted investments in renewable power, energy efficiency, clean transportation, grid modernization, energy R&D, carbon capture and storage, and labor training. The wind power generation last year was more than five times what it was in 2008, and we now have more than 100 times the installed solar capacity that we had in 2008. And the Recovery Act's clean energy-oriented efforts created nearly 1 million job years, according to the Council of Economic Advisors. I think that emphasizes a critical point that climate-oriented economic stimulus needs to deliver on two objectives. It needs to stimulate economic activity by increasing demand for labor that promotes job creation and enables more investment and capital throughout the economy. And second, it needs to combat climate change risk. And some activities may satisfy one or the other, but not both objectives, and the challenge lies in identifying those efforts that can address both. Let me offer a few lessons from the Recovery Act's experience. First, it is important to target our efforts. Targeting gets us the biggest bang for our buck in terms of jobs and climate risk. Related to this, we should explore efforts that can leverage private sector spending. For example, the Section 1603 grant for renewable power supported nearly 35 gigawatts of renewable power capacity investment. The federal government spent about $26 billion that leveraged nearly $70 billion of private sector and state and local government spending. 
Second, it's important to keep it simple. Administrative simplicity is crucial for quickly moving money out the door. An administratively simple program is easier for the private sector to understand and implement since they are typically the ones making the investment under a stimulus program. Third, we can learn what works and build on it. With big data and statistical tools, we can act and learn and update and improve on what we have learned. We can integrate this kind of review and learning so that we can get a bigger bang for our buck over time. Fourth, we should be opportunistic. For example, in 2008, the Troubled Asset Relief Program Bill, TARP, actually had more pages on energy tax provisions than it had on TARP. Uh, among the energy tax provisions included the 30% solar investment tax credit extended through 2016 and a one-year extension of the wind production tax credit. The effectiveness of the Section 1603 grant that I mentioned earlier is because it was coupled with these two extensions that occurred because in October of 2008, Congress decided to include energy tax provisions in the TARP bill. And finally, we need to frame our economic stimulus within our broader understanding of public policies oriented to climate change. For example, the increasingly robust policies implemented by state governments can complement and leverage federal spending on clean energy. Some energy sector investment requires not just spending, but non-financial decisions that can be thorny. And you can think about, say, transmission siding and cost allocation. And importantly, stimulus spending can help push out new technologies in the short run, but long-term policy signals can help pull these technologies out further over time. I think one of the concerns that we have from 2009 is that the policy uncertainty may have limited some of the investment that we would have realized because of the Recovery Act. Reese? Great. Thank you very much, Joe, and I appreciate uh, I'll, I'll you where that was really interesting. Um, all right, great. I'll just pass the floor right over to Sue Tierney, please. Thanks a lot, Reese, and it's nice to join everybody here today on this conversation. Let me build off of one of Joe's points, and that was uh, when he said we should do things that we know work. And there is a forthcoming uh, Oxford Review article. It's, it's about to be published and has gone public already. It's co-authored by Nobel Prize winner Joe Stiglitz. They studied, the authors studied dozens of stimulus policies in the United States and elsewhere, including the ARRA, and they identified five strategies that have a high potential for both economic recovery and climate impact. So again, building off of what Joe had said, the top of the list was investment in clean physical infrastructure. There are other things in that, uh, that top five list, including energy efficiency, uh, R and clean R and excuse me R and D uh, investment ed in education and training. So why transmission? Uh, why transmission is part of a clean energy infrastructure investment stimulus package? Well, today's system, the grid, is operating uh, you know around the clock and it's doing its job in critical ways today during this pandemic. But uh, it's it's honest to say that it's old. It is not as resilient as it should be and it needs expansion in order to open up areas for renewable energy development places with high quality wind in the middle of the country offshore wind uh, access to solar high capacity solar in the southwest for example so investment in transmission would have three types of benefits for both economic stimulus and uh, reducing climate risk first jobs a 1990, excuse me, <laughs> 2019 Brattle study indicated that investment in trans, transmission 
directly leads to uh, high quality construction jobs, equipment manufacturing, and macroeconomic benefits. Uh, they estimate that spending at a level of 12 to 16 billion a year over this next decade will produce 30 to 40 billion a year in economic activity, 150,000 150, to 200,000 full-time equivalent jobs each year. So it, this has truly an economic stimulus benefit. It doesn't just need to be uh, in new transmission line. There's a lot of equipment that could come uh, that uh, is important for assuring a resilient grid. Second, access to renewables. Uh, you can't continue to add renewables on the prairie unless you can deliver it to places where people use electricity uh, in high demand. So you need transmission capacity additions. And when you do that, you then stimulate renewable energy development, which is known to have a very high uh, job multiplier in the short run. Um, and so jobs in the middle of a recession are very important to start to stimulate. Uh, and then third, resiliency. Given the, uh, the expected trend of increasing extreme weather events and the consistent increase in cyber attacks, we need a better grid in order to handle those uh, reliably. Finally, uh, as Joe just mentioned, there are lots of ways that Congress can fund and create incentives for private investment in grid modernization. The tax credits he mentioned, uh, the Department of Energy had a smart grid investment grant program to the states. Uh, it was a tremendous success in stimulating economic activity and a better grid today than we had 10 years ago. And finally, one way that would be especially important, uh, as we know during this pandemic, access to broadband in the rural parts of the country is quite limited and working, uh, enabling rural electric co-ops to have access to low cost loans and grants to expand their grid as well as broadband access would be a, a, double, uh, a double whammy in a good way. Thank you. Great, thank you very much, Sue. And I will turn the floor over to Kathy Zoy uh, with EBGO. Hi, um, folks, uh, thanks for joining this morning and um, thanks to Joe and Sue for great tea up there. Um, I'm going to focus a little bit on the transportation sector um, issues and the particular electrification of vehicles. I mean, one of the things that we know if we're going to accelerate the development of electrified transportation, which is cleaner, um, we need to have it, the electric EVs be affordable. And that's all about reducing the cost of batteries, which is well on its way. Um, and we'll continue to get better and better. I think I saw this morning another announcement by GM about the next generation of batteries that they're investing in. Um, the second thing is, of course, we need EVs that have a, a range of, that, that makes people comfortable, and that's kind of over 200 miles. Again, the cars, the new EVs that are coming onto the market have exceed 200 miles of range, which means that people are comfortable with them. And the third is where I spend a lot of my time, which is on the charging infrastructure. You've got to be able to, to fully electrify transportation. We need to be able to charge at home, at work, and on the go. Um, and, and that's the area where I think that there's a really interesting opportunity for an infrastructure-oriented stimulus um, bill and for our, this to have a role there. Um, the car companies are investing over $300 billion in development of new EVs, and they're coming to market 
Um, now, over the next several years, I mean, the estimates have been that by um, 2025, it's likely that we'll have 5 million electric vehicles on the roads because of the many, many models that are coming. What that necessitates, the analysts say, is that we have at least 45,000 fast chargers and another 500,000 um, level two um, chargers. Um, that that is the opportunity that I'd love to focus on. We we are expecting that that you know the, the sector right now um, of electrified of electric vehicles probably employs about 200,000 people. Um, in in charging, that's probably on the manufacturing is about 80,000 jobs. What we know at EVGO, and we've been around since about 2010, is that it's approximately a jo one job created for every DC fast charger that we build. So if we're if we're aiming to get 45,000 new DC fast chargers on the road, we're talking about, you know, somewhere between 30 and 40,000 jobs over the next few years um, that will help juice the economy. Um, I would just love to echo what both Joe and Sue said, is that there, the opportunities are right here before us. We're looking for the overlap in the Venn diagram of stimulating the economy, rebuilding infrastructure, but doing it in a way that, that ensures that we are on a, on a trajectory that reduces greenhouse gas emissions and addresses the pressing needs of climate change. And, you know, with the combination of, of modernizing the grid, of, of, of cleaning up our power supply, and of cleaning up our transportation sector, which now has emissions in the United States that are in excess of even what the power sector is, we, can, we have a winning formula. Thanks. Great. Thank you, Kathy. Um, and then our, our last speaker for today before we get into the Q&A is Dan Lashoff, Director for Debray US. Thanks, Reese. Uh, thanks, Joe, Sue, and Kathy for teeing this up. So earlier this week, uh, scientists with the Global Carbon Project reported uh, that the decrease in economic activity resulting from measures to limit the spread of COVID-19 resulted in a reduction in global CO2 emissions that peaked at somewhere between 11 and 25% below last year's level uh, on, a, on or about April 7th. For the year as a whole, they estimate that 2020 emissions will be 2 to 13% uh, below 1990, uh, 2019 levels, um, uh, depending on how quickly containment measures are relaxed. Now, this is nothing to celebrate. These reductions resulted from massive economic hardship, not the kind of structural change that we need to be on a sustainable economic path. While some behavior changes, uh, such as increased bicycling and reduced business air travel may be persistent, experience from previous recessions shows that emissions will quickly rebound in the absence of policy shifts to build back better. The US has uh, already committed almost three trillion dollars that's trillion with a t a, a really almost unimaginable amount of money um to prevent the economy from collapsing and last week the house passed a bill that would spend another three trillion dollars most of that was focused on sending unrestricted money to individuals and to shore up state and local governments whose revenues have been hammered by the COVID crisis. But the bill also included a number of other provisions. Unfortunately, none of them uh, were aimed at laying the groundwork for continued emission reductions as the economy recovers. Now, we know that the House bill won't become law in its current form. And hopefully, 
as Congress continues to debate how to revive the U.S. economy, it will turn to proven job-creating investments that will also move the economy onto a lower carbon path, as um, previous speakers have pointed to. WRI has published five policy notes with very specific ideas. Um, uh, again, some of these have been touched on uh, by previous speakers, uh, but let me highlight just a couple of others. In addition to the EV charging infrastructure that Kathy just talked about, we suggest federal investment to replace 10% of our transit and school bus fleet with electric buses. Uh, that would not only put people to work uh, building the batteries and the buses, um, but it would uh, lower pollution that is uh, being emitted directly into people's neighborhoods, uh, particularly uh, in school buses where the pollution levels inside diesel school buses can be higher than outside, uh, affecting our most vulnerable uh, folks. And importantly, that capital investment um, would provide long-term operation and maintenance savings so that the transit and school transit agencies and school districts that are taking such a huge hit now would not only get a short-term infusion but they would have uh, longer-term cost savings finally i'll just note one other proposal for literally shovel-ready investments in restoring trees to the landscape which could create thousands of jobs uh, this summer uh, to put people back to work and also achieve significant carbon reduction, which we know we're going to need in order to get uh, the uh, net uh, zero emissions that uh, we'll have to achieve by mid-century to prevent warming of uh, more than 1.5 degrees as uh, the Paris Agreement calls for. Thanks. Great. Thank you, Dan. Um, and as Dan was mentioning, we, we do have this new expert notes um, that we've been published just recently. If you go to wri.org slash coronavirus hyphen expert hyphen notes, um, that has um, all those resources there. A lot of great facts and, and figures that you could consider using for your reporting. Um, as I mentioned earlier, well, first I would say thank you so much to all of our speakers um, for, for joining us and, and for, for sharing their um, you know, the expertise and the great remarks uh, this morning. Um, as I mentioned earlier, um, we are on a conference call, um, so that we have some challenges with, with our, our, our tech because the service you normally would use with an operator-assisted call is um, not available <laughs> because of COVID, because they just don't have any operators in their offices. Um, so with that in mind, I would say just bear with me. Um, what we want to do right now is to go into a, a Q&A. Um, and um, if you can just go ahead and, and, and chime in if, if you have a question. Um, if we have people talking over each other, I will help uh, coordinate with that. Um, and then if you could please just share your name, your outlet. Um, and then if you have a sense of who you want to direct your question to, you can share that as well. Um, but let's just jump right into the Q&A. And the last thing I'll, I'll mention is that if you did join halfway through the call, um, the, the call is being recorded and reach out to me, Reese Scareholt at WRI, and I will get you a recording um, shortly thereafter. Um, but I'll open the floor for questions. Hey, Reese, this is Peter Fairley. Okay, great. Thanks, Peter. Please go ahead. A uh, question for uh, uh, Sue Tierney and uh, Joe Aldi. Um, can you talk about <clears throat> the, the transmission that could be uh, 
included in, in a stimulus package and um, whether there would be a, a role there for long distance transmission that, that exchanged energy between regions, which is something that the uh, grid, grid planning in the U.S. has kind of uh, neglected. Um, and uh, so how important is that as a, as a part of the package? And can you talk about the policy challenges to, to sort of getting the shell on the ground? Joe, should I start? Uh, yes, go ahead, please, Sue. Great. Uh, it, Peter, you're absolutely right that the opportunities associated with uh, high voltage direct current lines uh, being placed across the country would be a, uh, a a major enabler of renewable energy development. There's uh, countless studies, including some that I've done as long as 10 years ago, <clears throat> indicate the value of such a high uh, high voltage overlay. It 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 will need to be in a multi-state environment, uh, but not just because the wind is far away from where people and load centers live. Um, but also because uh, it, high voltage DC lines are really uh, suited best for long distance. So we need to do that. There are ways that Congress could help to stimulate that. I, I think that capital is not the, uh, the problem. Access to capital is not the problem, but de-risking capital would be very important. So loan guarantees, um, other ways that Congress could add um, carrots for the private sector to step up for those investments. The reason it's risky, as uh, is well known, it's very difficult to site new multi-state transmission lines. Uh, but there is a growing demand for access to high-quality renewable supply, whether it's offshore wind or, as I've said earlier, in the uh, the middle of the country. And uh, the states there know it. Uh, they, the states know that uh, they, they need to move power across their, their states. So I am very hopeful that the lessons we've learned from governors who have seen the need to take a leadership role both in their state and in conjunction with neighboring states could step up to help enable the, the siting challenge to be overcome for this. But there's a lot of work that could be done uh, today, as some of those projects um, would be moving toward development and siting. So there's a lot of dollars that could be stimulated early for a longer-term payoff. So I think Sue, Sue hit all the key points there. I, I just want to emphasize this is a, a case where it's important to think about not just dollars that would be spent in a stimulus package, but how do you think about the larger policy framework that enables that investment? And it's, it's the siting issues and it's the cost allocation issues when you're dealing with multiple jurisdictions that when we were working on the Recovery Act more than a decade ago were, were some of the thornier issues and, and why at the end of the day, there wasn't a lot of spending in the Recovery Act on building new transmission lines because as Sue noted, it's not so much a, 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 an issue of can you finance these? It's, it's, the challenge of, of being able to move quickly with this because of the the related policy context that you have to deal with. Can I just ask a follow-up? Um, so if, if there wasn't a lot of spending on building new transmission lines, I mean, what, what what is the nearer-term spending that could be done, uh, as, as Sue said, to 
to stimulate stimulate the longer term payoff? Well, um, there there was a program that was authorized in ARRA for many years. It was DOE's Smart Grid Investment Grant Program. That included a wide variety of things, control systems, <clears throat> other equipment add-ons to transmission, advanced metering, uh, modeling capability, development work to get things toward being shovel-ready. <laughs> so uh, there, <clears throat> there was... I think there were 100 projects, my notes say, uh, with, um, that were enabled by $3 billion in investments. Uh, that, that investment in those smart grid activities that are really hanging on the high-voltage wires as well as uh, on the distribution system, that had a payoff of over 2x in terms of macroeconomic activity. So there's, there's a lot more demand for those things. I mentioned uh, that resilience of the grid and uh, security against cyber attack is really a, a winner uh, in terms of things that need to be invested in today. And providing some incentives for more of that to be done would be great. Great, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Peter, for the question. Next question, please. If there are any. I have a question. Uh, this is Kate Zerner with Triple Pundit. Um, so, you know, the, the dams that broke in Michigan yesterday, and there's the, obviously we have a lot of issues with our water infrastructure, which is not, I mean, I know, I know all three of y'all. So I know that, that energy is your is your area but thinking about like the energy water nexus and how we should be approaching our water infrastructure as a way to get at energy reductions and carbon reductions um how to what are your thoughts about including some of the water infrastructure needs as part of an energy rebuild so i i want to emphasize one thing about where, where we are today relative to last time and about what are some of the key differences. And, and for me, one of the big differences is that in 2009, everything was really focused on reducing CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions in the clean energy package of the Recovery Act. And I think as we have a better understanding of the increasing risk posed by climate change, a thoughtful stimulus package to address climate risk should go beyond just tackling emissions. And that we need to think about ways in which we can use the investment in infrastructure to improve our resilience and to adapt to a changing climate. And, and I think this is an excellent example of that. So, yes, I've spent most of my time in my research and my policy work thinking about mitigating emissions. But I think we need to take as broad a policy approach now as possible to deal with the risk of climate change. And that means going beyond just energy sector emissions. It means some of what was raised earlier in the call about how we can promote uh, reduction in emissions from land use uh, and and from tree planting. It's thinking about ways in which we can do investment in, in improving our resilience. And, and I think that the thinking about dam infrastructure is just one of many examples in that space. Yeah, I would just add, uh, this is Sue, um, <laughs> ditto to what Joe just said. And everything that, that we said about the energy infrastructure, that is, you know, it, it's, a, it's a double 
payoff to make investments there. That is also true of water infrastructure. That's also true of broadband infrastructure. So there are a, a, a number of uh, ways in which putting the shovel in the ground, so to speak, for across these things would be very important. As you know, water uh, water supply and delivery is a huge user of electricity. And so it would be a double payoff there to make investments to shore up aging infrastructure, but also to uh, tighten uh, the efficiency with which we supply, deliver, and then treat water in the country. It's a great question. Uh, this is Dan. If I, I'll just join, uh, add on one other thing. Um, and the crises uh, don't uh, don't wait for each other to finish before the next one comes. So we're entering uh, both hurricane season and wildfire season, uh, and uh, a lot of the the resilience uh, measures that Sue talked about on the grid uh, become increasingly important when we think about that. The other thing I wanted to note is that electric vehicles. Uh, particularly buses, but also personal vehicles can play a, a role there by enabling vehicle to grid technology. So having a smart grid connecting an increasingly electrified transportation system can be part of our resilience solution because uh, an electric school bus uh, is also a mobile power source to power a community center uh, or, or school if the grid goes down. Great, yeah, that's really, really interesting question. Thank you. Um, all right, any other questions? I could ask another question. This is Peter Fraley. Thank you, Peter. I guess I'll, I'll give people a couple more beats if someone wants to just come in and maybe still formulating their thoughts. Anyone else? Going once. No. Okay, great. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. Please go ahead. Okay. So, um, so you mentioned that uh, among the the things that were in the AARA was um, money for modeling capabilities, and yeah. um, I think I'm I think I'm aware of some of that. Like the um, I think there was a there was modeling work on the Eastern interconnect, the big Eastern grid. Um, can you talk about sort of what, was, what was the impact of those investments and maybe just a little bit more about why we haven't seen the grid transformed? <laughs> you know, like take advantage of those insights. Sure. Um, let me give you, use the example of uh, visual visualization tools. Uh, operators of the grid historically have had difficulty. We, we saw this, I think, in the 2004-2005 blackout. I hope I got that date right. Uh, that hit much of the 2003. Thank you very much. Um, that, you know, there there was not the ability to see what was happening in terms of activity on the grid, power flows, uh, either in the next system or even the system beyond that. And we had a cascading event that was just, you know, terrible. 
So one of the investment uh, packages that came through ERA was the uh, grid visualization tools for, grid, for system operators. So that is a, a type of modeling and analytic tool that is operating in real time all the time. And that has been a, a wonderful tool that, uh, that, many, that, that has proliferated, so to speak, around the country. Um, there has, I think there has been um, significant work in uh, regional modeling, including the one that you just described on the Eastern Interconnect, uh, Interconnect-wide modeling. And that has continued to um, occur to this day with sub-regional modeling. Uh, and so for PJM, for example, and, and that those modeling efforts take a long-term look for what is needed on the grid for reliability, but also what's needed on the grid to open up access to cheaper supply or policy-driven supply. So we do see some of that. Um, I think that siting remains one of the key challenges. Uh, it would surprise me if in a stimulus uh, bill that there were mechanisms to address the siting challenge. Uh, but that could be one of those opportunistic things that, that Joe mentioned, that getting ready with some um, potential strengthening of federal authority there could be helpful. Okay. Thanks. Would anyone else like to chime in on that? That question? Okay, great. Thank you, Peter. Um, so I recognize some of you might not be asking questions you wanted maybe just to, to hear the speakers, um, but I will give you guys one more chance to chime in with um, additional questions. Anyone else? No? Okay. Um, that That's fine. Well, I, I know. Um, I'm, yeah, we'll definitely share the recording after this um, too, so you can use that for, for reference. Um, but I just want to thank everyone for joining, especially the speakers for taking the time and offering their thought leadership on this a very timely, important issue. Um, obviously, we'll, we'll, we'll see exactly when uh, an infrastructure-focused um, stimulus or something akin to that um, comes up, um, but it's certainly a very important topic. Um, so thank you all for joining today, and I look forward to staying in touch. Um, oh, lastly, I, I wanted to actually I'll, I'll pass the floor over to, to Kathy, if I could, because um, I know there's a, a, a recent paper from EVGO that came out. I wanted to give you a chance to flag that for, for the listeners. Oh, thanks. Thanks, Reese. Yeah, so so one of the things that is that has become clear to um, us as, as, at EVGO is that there's very little understanding about the the benefits and the cost of the different kinds of charging. People think that all oh, if you charge your car at home, it's the same as if you charge your car away. So we've just put together a paper that has probably the first best available data on the different kinds of charging and what they cost, and then the benefits of, of collaborations between government and the private sector to accelerating the deployment of, of, those, of that sort of fast charging infrastructure so that we can accelerate the transition to clean transportation. So a chock full of data can be found on EVGO's website. There's a blog post that's the short summary, and then there's the full paper. Um, I would encourage everybody to take a look um, and share it and come back to us at EVGO if you've got any questions about it. We'd, we'd love to, to help everybody understand a little bit more about, about uh, the opportunities in front of us. Thanks. Thanks, please. 
Yeah, no, sure thing. That's that's great. Very glad you had a chance to share that paper. And uh, lastly, I'll, I'll just reinforce the link I shared earlier for the expert notes that um, Dan had talked through. Um, they are available at wri.org slash coronavirus hyphen expert hyphen notes. Um, but with that, I will say goodbye. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.